Father, you're so good. And we are overwhelmed by your goodness. God, you are worthy of all our praise. You are worthy of our adoration. Lord, you are the only one who's worthy of any, anything like that. And God, you've called us as your people to offer it. You tell us in Hebrew 13 that we should offer a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving with our lips. And so we offer that to you this morning, Father, and we continue to offer you our worship as we study your word today. I pray by your spirit that you would speak to us, that we would listen, and that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 9, we'll read verse 1 through 11. I'm going to do a quick review of what we talked about last week. And if you, if you hear the quick review and you missed last week and you're like, boy, I'd like to hear the rest of that message. It's, up, it's on our website. And then we'll move forward with what we need to finish. So Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Then he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he said to them, Take nothing for the journey, neither staffs, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And whoever will not receive you, when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So they departed and went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him, and he was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the old prophets had risen again. Herod said, John I have beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? So he sought to see him. And the apostles, when they had returned, told him all that they had done. Then he took them and went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. But when the multitudes knew it, they followed him, and he received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who had need of healing. Now, I know, and I mentioned this last week, that we are stopping in the middle of an account because what picks up in verse 12 is the feeding of the 5,000. And like I said last week, I didn't want to get into the feeding of the 5,000 to make sure we had time to deal with the stuff that came before it uh, appropriately. Um, and then I didn't even get through it. So I'm really glad I didn't try to get the rest of that in here or we would not be finishing it this week. So two weeks ago, we saw Jesus heal the woman with the issue of blood and he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. He continues, and where we looked at last week, Jesus called the 12 disciples. And so in the first six verses, we talked about equipping and instruction. Because Jesus called each of the disciples, 
Uh, in 2 Peter 1, 5 through 11, we, see, we saw a progression of faith that added to faith virtue, knowledge, self-control, and so on, uh, which we talked about as being spiritual formation. And we talked about from John 15 how Jesus is the vine that produces the fruit. We just bear it, right? We can't produce the fruit on our own. Jesus is the one who does that through us, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We bear it. And my favorite illustration of that, I heard it years and years and years ago, is if you have a fruit tree, you know, say an apple tree, and you cut the branch off just as the apples are budding. Are the apples going to mature on the branch you cut off? No, because the branch is disconnected from the tree itself. We're no different. We're just, we're just like the, the branch. He is where the nutrients comes from. He is where the fruit comes from. All we do is bear it. And God, his invitation to us into the life he has created for us for our election, our salvation. And then a specific calling. They were specifically called to preach the gospel and heal the sick. Uh, we all have a similar calling. And we may not all be gifted you know, to pray over somebody and, and see them healed. Uh, I do believe God is a miracle-working God. We had a testimony of that already this morning, uh, that, that a young man was in a coma, and we've spent the last month praying for him. He's not in a coma anymore. He's been in the ICU. He's not in the ICU anymore. Only God can do that. And that's why we pray for one another. Now, there are times um, when God doesn't answer the prayer the way we want him to. And it's in those times where we remember, I'm going to start another sermon. I got to be careful. It's those times that we have to remember that he is God and we are not. He understands things that we don't. He has a plan that we may not get, you know, the full layout in front of us. It doesn't change that we are all called to share the love of Christ with people. And according to Ephesians 2.10, we are all called and equipped for something specific by God. So then Jesus equips us and he gave them authority. He gave them power to do the miraculous. Uh, Essentially what that means is he gave them the ability to do what they were called to do. And then he gave them the right to do it. We talked about that a little bit from 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 2 and 4, that we've been given all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. And then one of the ways God equips each of us today is through the ministry of the church. Uh, We looked at that from Ephesians 4, that he gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. And then Jesus gave them three instructions. The The first instruction was not to take anything, for the journey, which was an instruction to rely on God for their care. The second instruction was to find a place and to stay there, which I took as a command or an instruction to be content. Uh, And we looked at Philippians 4 there. The third instruction was what to do if they were rejected, and that was to shake off the dust from their feet. And we basically finished up last week talking about the disciples' obedience and the importance of that for us, because obedience is not a word we like, is it? Uh, we're Americans, right? We, we, don't, we don't bow to nobody. Yeah, we bow before King Jesus. And we always should have a desire to obey him. Now, if you're anything like me, 
you probably don't always do that just right. Am I the only one? At least I'm the only honest one. Wow. Okay. <laughs> right? We don't always do that right, but it should be our desire. It should be our goal is to live a life that's pleasing to our Father by obeying him. And we don't even do that on our own. We're given the Holy Spirit to give us the strength and the ability to obey him. We're given his word so we have guidance in how and where to obey him. And if we fail, which we will from time to time, we're given promises of forgiveness and restoration. So that's pretty much where we left off last week. We pick up today in verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the old prophets had risen again. Herod said, John, I have beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things. So he sought to see him. And hearing about Jesus, Herod appears to be a little bit confused, as he and others thought that perhaps John had risen from the dead, or that this was Elijah. And you have to remember that that would have been a very appropriate thought for a Jewish mindset, because uh, Malachi, right? Malachi? Anybody? Malachi chapter 4? Julie? (laughs) Help me out here. We're predicted Elijah's coming, right, before, before Jesus. It's, it's the Old Testament right at the end. Um, I'm pretty sure it's Malachi. Malachi, the Italian prophet. Um, but we, uh, and so the idea, they were expecting Elijah to come as the, the forerunner of the Messiah. Oh, my wife gave me a thumbs up. Thanks, baby. Uh, my fact checker back there. Um, so Elijah, they knew Elijah was coming as a forerunner. Now Jesus told us that John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah, but it would make sense to a Jewish mindset who didn't understand who Jesus was that perhaps he was Elijah, even though he said he wasn't. And whatever the case, Herod knew he killed John. And so he really didn't quite get what was going on, and he wanted to meet Jesus. We're not going to turn there. But if you go in your, this can be your homework if you want, Matthew 14, the first 12 verses of Matthew 14, we have the account of Herod killing John, essentially to appease his stepdaughter who was seeking to appease her mother. And if you recall, uh, Herod married his brother's sister. No, that's not right. Herod married, Herod married his brother's wife. It actually was his half-sister, which is a whole nother issue. Um, yeah, come on. It was messed up back then. It's like all kind of, oh yeah, no. Um, but yeah, her name was Herodias, which means she was a child of Herod. Not the Herod she married, but the father they shared. <laughs> um, John spoke up, right? Because first she married one brother, right? This chick had problems. First she married one brother, she married Philip, and then she saw Herod, and whether it was because he had more power, or he was better looking, or I don't know, they had some sort of affair. She left her brother Philip and married Herod, but she had a daughter who became Herod's stepdaughter, who was also Herod's niece. People, like as the world turns in the first century, this is, you know, a general hospital, it's weird. Next thing you're going to find out is Herod had an evil twin, Hans Remore. But, um, sorry, that's, that's, a, that's a friend's reference. Um, but, 
on Herod's birthday, it would have been easier to read it. <laughs> I told you don't turn there. We're going to save time. No, we're not. Uh, on his birthday, his niece slash stepdaughter danced for him, right? And if you just take a cursory reading, oh, she danced. That, that's nice. No. She kind of did like a strip tease. It was a seductive, um, sexually charged dance. And it pleased Herod. Yeah, when he gets eaten by worms later, I'm okay with it. Um, but it pleased Herod. And he said, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. And she doesn't know what to ask for. She goes and asks her mom. And uh, she says, I want the head of John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist spoke out against Herod's sexual immorality. So Herod threw him in prison. But Herod was afraid to kill him. Right? He was afraid to kill him. And he often talked with him. But because of his oath... He had Herod, or he had John executed and had the head brought on a platter to his stepdaughter niece and she took it to her mother. Great family. I wonder what Thanksgiving was like around that household. <laughs> but we know in Matthew 14, 9 that Herod was sorry for promising this, uh, but he did it anyway. And what I think we kind of see here and may pick up in other places, is that just maybe Herod was plagued by what he had done. I don't know that he was necessarily felt guilty, but somewhere inside he knew that it was wrong to murder a man who had really done nothing wrong uh, just to make his stepdaughter happy. Whatever the case... This is kind of a little, what, what we would call a parenthetical account, all right? We have a, we have a narrative moving for us and forward for us in the life of Christ. In, in verses 1 through 6, he sends out his disciples. In verse 10, the apostles return, right? But then we get this little statement, like you put it in parentheses, about something else that was happening around the same time. So we pick up in verse 10. And the apostles... When they had returned, told him all that they had done. Then he took them and went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. But when the multitudes knew it, they followed him and he received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who had need of healing. When the disciples returned, they tell Jesus what happened. Now, Jesus takes them aside privately. The word there is actually separately. And it says he takes them to a deserted place near Bethsaida. That word deserted there, uh, sometimes you'll find it in Scripture um, as the, uh, uh, the word wilderness. Uh, it's the word in Greek that we've talked about before, eremos. Uh, E-R-A-M-O-S. And what it means is it's not just that it was, it was desert. It's not just that there wasn't a city around, but it was a place to get alone. It was a place where it was quiet. It was a place free of distraction. And after he had sent them out on this, he's like, we need a break. So he takes them to this Aramos type place, but the multitudes were having none of it. They saw where he went, they followed him, and instead of turning them away, 
Jesus does what he does best. He received them, taught them, and healed them. And we're going to see he feeds them uh, when we get back into chapter 9 next year. Um, We'll see that he feeds them as well. So let's take this apart a bit. So the first thing is the disciples, they had returned and they told them what they had done. Now when we get to Luke chapter 10, (laughs) someday. Um, When we get to Luke chapter 10, we'll read the account of Jesus sending out the 70. And when they come back, what they tell Jesus is, you know, hey, even even the demons are subjected to us. And they're all excited about what they got to do. But then Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 20, the 70 returned with joy, saying, even Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Now, I say this a lot, that I wonder about voice, you know, tone of voice, inflection, body language. We, we don't know what Jesus' body language was. We don't know what his tone of voice was. But they came back and they're like, Lord, Lord, this happened. And I picture it in my mind, because I have issues, that it was a bit sarcastic. I saw Satan fall like lightning. Like, who cares? Yeah, I gave you all this authority, but that's not what matters. And I have no proof of that. I, right, don't quote me. That's not scripture. That's just how I hear it in my mind. But basically what he's saying is, you know what? I saw, I saw much better than that. I saw Satan himself fall. Because, but that's not what matters. Yeah, you, you can overcome demons, great. You can conquer serpents, good for you. He goes, but this is what you should rejoice in. That your names are written in heaven. And I like that distinction. Because what Jesus, I think, is saying here is that our relationship with God through him is more important than being able to perform some kind of miracle. Now, I've said it many times. I said it earlier today. I believe God is a God of miracles. I know God can do a miracle. How many of you woke up today, right? That's a miracle. We're breathing. How many of you have thought about breathing today? Anybody? Right? You woke up and you're like, oh, I needed to remember to do something. (gasps) That's it. I have to remember to breathe. No, you don't. We have this amazing thing. They call it the autonomic nervous system. And don't, I don't know how to spell that. Um, But the autonomic nervous system is all the things that our body just does. Right? Do you have to think about digesting the donut you ate on the way in? Anybody? Right? You're just sitting there real hard and you should be paying attention to the sermon, but instead you're paying attention to your gut, trying to convince it to digest the donut. You don't have to do that, right? That doesn't exist. You don't have to remember to breathe. How many of you blink on purpose, just random? You know, we don't, or we just blink. I mean, sometimes you get something in your eye and you might do that, but we don't do that. How many of you tell your heart to beat? Wouldn't that suck? Right? If you just had to sit there all day, beat beat and you get a phone call and then you die because you got distracted and your heart stopped beating right we don't have to do that because god created us it just all does it 
That's a miracle. And then what's really miraculous to make it even better is that we are this biological machine that can eat a donut and that donut can give you energy to get through portion of your day. Okay, there's better ways to get energy than a donut. I'm not I'm just, that's just an example because I ate a couple this morning. Um, it's Sunday. These are the Lord's carbs. They don't count. Just like holidays, right? Those are sanctified carbs. But that, just every day that we're alive, is a testimony to the miraculous work of God. Now, can God do supernatural things that go above and beyond the laws of physics? Of course he can. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. If he was really in the mood, he could just flick the sun out of its orbit and watch the planets go twirling off into the rest of the universe. He could. Pretty grateful that he hasn't, but he could because he's God. So can he heal a person who's sick? Of course he can. He can heal us physically, emotionally. He can heal us spiritually. Can he provide for us in miraculous ways? Of course he can. He's God. And there's many times that I have rejoiced over a number of those things. And then a passage like this brings me back, though, to what's truly important. Because the greatest miracle that will ever happen to any of us is when we're saved is when God takes the heart of stone and he replaces it with a heart of flesh. When God takes the sins that are ours and places them on his son, and in exchange, we get his forgiveness and his righteousness and his grace and his mercy. That is the greatest miracle that any of us have ever experienced. And I know some of you have experienced some awesome things. But even raising the dead, as as great as something like that would be to see or to experience or to be part of, it's still not as great as salvation. Because if you raise somebody from the dead, let's just talk about Lazarus for a second. Anybody talk to Lazarus recently? Guess what? He died again. Because even if you raise someone from the dead, they'll die. If, you, if someone gets healed of cancer, and I'm not trying to bum anybody out, but eventually, right, the body is still going to wear out. Eventually, the body will be done. And it's only when we know Christ as Savior that the body doesn't matter. Because when this tent is gone, the corruptible will put on incorruptible. 1 Corinthians 15 says this in such a wonderful way. That in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we will be changed. Now, that does speak of the rapture, but if we died right now, right? Big meteor hit the building. We were watching disaster movies a couple weeks ago and kept trying to find ones that had meteors in them. Um, right? So a big meteor hit the building and we were all done. Guess what? We would just continue having church in a new body in a different place. Praise God. That is the greatest miracle. And I think that's why Jesus isn't telling them, you know, don't worry about miracles. Don't pray for people. He's not saying that. He goes, yes, you can do that. And that's great. But this is what you should rejoice in. That you know me. That you're saved. That your name is written in the book of life. Now, they tried to rest. So he took them 
uh, second half of verse 10. He took them and they went aside privately into a deserted place, the Aramos, this place of solitude, this place of uh, to get ready from distractions, and it belonged to the city of Bethsaida. Now, this didn't really work out because the crowds followed him, but he took them to a place with the intention of giving them rest. Now, rest is one of the spiritual disciplines that we often fall short of. We don't think of rest as a spiritual discipline. We think of prayer as a spiritual discipline. It is. Or reading the Bible, or, or worship, or fasting, or a host of other things. But how often do we think about rest as an act of worship? Or do we think about rest as something that can contribute to our spiritual formation? Because when we talked about spiritual formation last week, we, we talked about the fact that we are all being formed spiritually. We all are. Every single person on earth is being formed spiritually. Whether they know it or not, whether they recognize it, that's irrelevant. We're all being formed spiritually. Even the person who grows up with atheist parents and grows up and calls themselves an atheist and they don't believe in God and they don't go to church and they want nothing to do with it, they've still been formed spiritually. It was a bad direction. But they still have those thoughts, those opinions, and those beliefs, even if they're wrong. So the goal is to in, be intentional about our spiritual formation. And one of the ways we can do that is with rest. Now, this is not an attempt to put a legalistic requirement of Sabbath on any of us. You do not have to take a day off from work to go to heaven. Right? That's what legalism does. And ultimately, Jesus is our rest, and we enter his rest when we stop trying to work for our salvation, and we stop trying to work for his favor. We can read about that in Hebrews chapter 4. So this is not a salvation issue, but it is a formation issue. Right? We are saved by grace through faith alone. And as followers of Christ, he wants to form us, conform us, transform us to be more like his son. One of the ways that he can work to do that, or he does work to do that, is to take time for spiritual, emotional, and physical rest. Because that's vital for us in order to continue to follow God's call on our lives. A few weeks ago, we studied uh, 1 Kings 19 on Wednesday night. After, in 1 Kings 18, Elijah had the victory over the 850 prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth. Right, And, and then they, they execute all of these people, and, and Elijah prays for rain, and after three and a half years, rain comes back on the land. And not only that, then God gives him the strength to outrun a chariot back to Jezreel. Right? He, tells, he tells Ahab, go home in your chariot before it gets too muddy as the rain's coming in. And then he runs ahead of the chariot. I don't know many men who can outrun a couple of horses pulling a chariot, but he does it. And when Ahab gets there, Elijah's standing outside the city gate. <sighs> Hi. You know, I don't care. He doesn't say he was breathing heavy. But whatever the case, this is chapter 18. This is the greatest probably spiritual high of Elijah's life. In the beginning of chapter 19, Ahab's wife Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you. How dare you did this to my prophets, I'm going to kill you. And Elijah runs. And what does he do? He runs into the wilderness. 
And he says to God, I'm done, kill me. I don't want to do this anymore. And then he takes a nap. Angel wakes him up, gives him something to eat, and he goes back to sleep. Angel wakes him up, gives him something to eat. He goes on a you know, five-week-long walk out into the wilderness to get to Mount Oreb, the mountain of God. And while he's there, God says, what are you doing? And he gives God the same answer. I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. Kill me. And then there's a fire and an earthquake and a tornado. And then God's voice comes to him in a still, small voice. And he reassures him and he sends him back to work. But that, to me, is a picture of the need, right? Elijah needed a break. Elijah needed a break. Now, there's a lot of stuff going on there that we, I unpacked when we talked to that, or we went through 1 Kings 19. So if you want, you can go back and listen to that. Uh, it is on our website. But one of the things that we take away from that is the importance of a day of rest. Now, for about a year... I'm just going to tell you a quick story and we're going to move forward. For about a year, God has been prompting me to do this. And for about a year, I've been disobedient. And in the course of that year, uh, the Holy Spirit has come to me looking a lot like my wife. Does anybody else, and right guys, does your, the Holy Spirit ever look like your wife? Boy, he looks like my wife a lot. And then... Just to make it interesting, he, he came to me looking a lot like John Ritchie, too. Who you can pray for, he's got a cold today. Um, and they've been urging me, along with guidance from the Word and several books I've read, so on and so forth, to take a day of rest, that I have been disobedient. So I finally started doing it. I was like, okay, I'm going to take 24 hours a week where I'm, gonna, I'm not going to work. And what I discovered is the only way I can do that successfully is to turn my phone off. Um, and it's not that I don't love you all. I love you all desperately. And if you need me, and you text me, and I don't get back to you, you can text John or you can text my wife. If there's an emergency, they can get a hold of me. But it's not just you, right? Because I love to hear from you guys. You can text me all you want. Um, it's everybody else. <laughs> and I know that sound. I can't tell you how many phone calls I get a week. I get so many phone calls every week. And most of them are advertisers. People tell me, you know, we can make your church website better. I don't need you to make my church website better. Haley does a great job. Oh, we can do this marketing campaign and we'll grow your church by 20%. Yeah, we need three more people. Thanks. But, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not really worried about that and we're not going to pay you $10,000 to do it. Uh, I, you, I just can't over and over and over. I'm inundated with stuff like that. And the only way I can get away from it is to turn my phone off. Right? And I don't want to be inaccessible. I'm going to talk about that here in a moment. Um, but if I'm going to take a day off, I've got to turn my phone off. So if you text me Friday at 7.30 uh, because something's gone wrong, text John. <laughs> right? And he'll get a hold of me. Um, but over and over, we see this in Scripture. The importance of rest. Now, why does rest lead to spiritual formation? Because when we rest, we get rid of the noise. We get rid of the distraction. We get rid of those things that are pulling us in a hundred different directions. We actually take time to say, all right, I'm not going to do this, but I'm going to focus on you. And it's sweet. As we've been going through the prayer practice, 
one of the practices that we'll get into next year is the as a practice of a Sabbath. And I encourage you, uh, if the prayer practice has been a blessing to you, that you would be involved in that as well. Um, we are delaying the end of the prayer practice by a week, uh, but that's another story. We'll, we'll actually finish it up over the next couple of weeks. Um, but when the crowds found out, they followed him. And what did Jesus do? Did he send them away? No. He received them, he taught them, and he healed them. And when we continue the account of John chapter 9, he fed them. Now, Tyler Staten, in his book, Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools, calls this, uh, this specific event, as well as several others, being intentional yet interruptible. Intentional yet interruptible. And Jesus often spent time alone with his father, which is what I think he was trying to do with his disciples here, but he allowed that to be interrupted because of his love for the people. Right? When we think back a couple weeks ago, when Jesus, right, Jairus came to Jesus and said, come heal my daughter, she's, she's about to die. Jesus said, okay. And while he was on his way, the woman touched the hem of his garment. He was interruptible. Now, as we went through that, we know Jairus probably wasn't too happy about that interruption, but Jesus was. And he speaks of how hurry, Staten speaks of how hurry kills love, but being still before God brings us into a place that makes us people of unhurried love. Unhurried love. That phrase struck me like a ton of bricks. Psalm 46.10 encourages us to be still and know that he is God. And as apprentices to Jesus, we are being transformed in his image and we are being made more like our master and he taught us to rest, but he also taught us to love. He taught us to be intentional in our lives, right? That means to be good stewards over the life and resources God has given to you but also to be interruptible. We need to be unhurried in our lives so that God can interrupt us at any moment. And sometimes, quite often, he's going to use other people to do that. So, how many of you have ever prayed for patience and found out what a mistake that was? <laughs> right? Because when you pray for patience, God doesn't just make you patient. No, he gives you the opportunity to be patient. So as I'm reading through this book, Praying Like Monks, and, and I'm, I'm reading this stuff and that phrase, unhurried love, just, like I said, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. A couple of weeks ago, I'm like, all right, Lord, I want to be intentional. I want to be interruptible. I want to have this kind of unhurried love. So he miraculously bestowed that upon me. No, he didn't. You know what he did? He interrupted the snot out of me that week. It was, it, it, was, it got to the point where I started laughing. It really did. I would be in the middle of something, I'd get a phone call, and it wasn't like, okay, great, thanks for calling. No, it was like, I need to talk to you now. Oh, okay. Four hours later. Oh, well, right? And after the first time it happened, I'm like, well, I did ask for this. After like the fourth time it happened that week, I just, it was, it was just funny because of like, okay, I shouldn't have asked. <laughs> or I should have asked and I should accept what you're doing. Uh, but it was, it was really beautiful because what it showed me um, 
and I have not gotten there. I'm not, please, right, I'm not saying this, Lord. I'm not saying I've learned it, that I know it, that I'm great right now. I'm taking this huge leap of spiritual maturity. No, he did that for one week. And he's probably going to do it some more. And what, what I did is I got a glimpse of what it was like to just not worry about it. All right, okay, well, I, I need to do this, but somebody else needs me to do something else. Fine, I'll do that first. It's just really interesting to me because I still got everything done. I still had a great week. And God gave me opportunities to love on people who needed it. Um, it was awesome. We're going to close. Ooh, not bad at all. So this conclusion is meant for the whole message. Uh, we are equipped and instructed and empowered to obey our God. This is meant for us to exercise his love in the world around us. In order for us to be open to his equipping and to follow his instructions by the power of his spirit, we have to take time to be still before God. Uh, I don't know how many of you have heard of Carl Jung, uh, a Swiss psychiatrist. I do not ascribe to everything that Carl Jung thought, but he has a quote that I think is pretty great uh, that I stole. By all, I have several quotes. These all came from Tyler Statton's book, uh, Praying Like Monks. The quote is, hurry is not of the devil. It is the devil, which I thought was interesting. Richard Foster, who wrote a critical work on spiritual discipline called Celebration of Discipline, wrote, in contemporary society, our adversary majors in three things, noise, hurry, and crowds. If he can keep us engaged in muchness and manyness, he will rest satisfied. Right? One of the enemy's key weapons against us is distraction. Right? The, look at what uh, Adam and Eve, right? when the devil showed up in the garden, did he said, you should disobey God right now. What did he do? Hey, man, that tree's nice. Yeah, it is a nice tree. Did God really say you shouldn't eat it? I mean, is, is that what you heard? I'm not sure. Well, right, and it goes on from there. He's never going to show up in front of you and go, here is the worst sin you can possibly think of. Have fun. No, he's, he's better than that. He's more subtle than that. And one of the things that he loves to use is distraction. Tyler Statton goes on and said, stillness before God transforms us into unhurried love. And this is the love Jesus shows us, a life of love that is intentional, and interruptible. Whatever our calling, whatever God has equipped us for, wherever he sends us, and whatever instructions or commands he asks us to obey, it all comes back to love. And us becoming followers of Christ who love like our master loves. Remember when, when the, uh, the religious leader came to Jesus and said, what are the two greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. On the whole law, hang these two commandments. The end is love. And if we want that in our lives, we have to slow down and be still before God. We have to listen, we have to pray, and we have to respond. And as we move closer to an unhurried existence, God will make space in our lives. He'll make space to know him and to receive from him space to know ourselves better 
and space to love those around us. So I'll close with three questions, one that I asked last week. But the first one is, have you received the love of God in Christ leading to your salvation? If there's anybody here, or there's anybody listening on, online, or somebody who hears this recording later on, if you have never received Christ as Savior, you have never surrendered your life to the free gift of salvation that he offers to you, do it now. And if you need help with that, let us know. The question that we asked last week, what equipping is God doing in your life, and how can you respond to that? And I think that's a wonderful question for all of us, because if you're alive, he's got work for you. If he was done with you, you wouldn't be here anymore. But you're here, so there's a reason. And then the third one, I put one steps. What steps, and then, did I do it up there in parentheses? Or just one step. Can you take this week to unhurry your life a bit? And I know, that that's a tall order. I'm, I'm watching Haley back there, and she's going to perk up because she heard her name. <laughs> Bouncing a beautiful baby boy. And you're going, yeah, how do you unhurry with that? How do you unhurry when you have an infant in the house? I don't know. <laughs> I've never tried. But, and I get, right, work and, and, and friends and social things. And, and I get, but is there something you can do to slow down a little? Retire. <laughs> it's all Linda's fault now. Um, that, that, <laughs> I'm trying to work here. Uh, that's funny. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Hey, if you can retire, slow down. Yeah, it's definitely the way to go. Um, but I think, I think it's good for us. Uh, I've been taking, uh, been trying to as a family, just taking, right, things that might not seem that significant, but... Just imagine if you took one hour a week and didn't, right? And fill in the blank. One hour a week that I'm not going to go on social media. Or, or one, or if you can't do an hour, I get it. What if you just took 10 minutes? Just start somewhere. It makes a huge difference. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love for your grace and your mercy and your kindness. Thank you for your word and um, a year that we've spent journeying through Luke and look forward uh, according to your will and by your grace to continuing on in Luke in 2024. And I pray as we enter the Advent season uh, that you would just bless us over the next few weeks as we focus on the birth of our Savior. And I pray, God, that you would work in our lives to help us become people of unhurried love. And for each of us, God, that's going to look different. And how you get us there is going to look different. But it doesn't change that I'm convinced that's where you want all of us to go. Where we rely on you, where we trust in you, where we can wait on you and be still before you as you work in us to make us more like your son pray that we would bring you glory in every aspect of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.